Hello, I'm Gail. And hi, I'm Catherine. Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, our award-winning weekly podcast. Please visit womenover70.com and consider joining Aging Reimagined Circle, our sustaining membership fund, so we may continue to inspire women to age with curiosity, courage, and creativity. Members enjoy monthly programming and probing discussions, and we hope to see you there. And today we have Helen Hirsch Spence. Helen is 74 and the founder and CEO of Top 60 Over 60, a niche age diversity consultancy she founded in 2017. After witnessing firsthand how ageism was impacting her generation and how the upcoming demographic shift would affect North America's social and economic fabric. Her passion for promoting age diversity and challenging ageism is central to her work and the work of Top 60 Over 60. Helen's reputation as a thought leader has earned her invitations to speak at conferences, on podcasts, and to write for newspapers, magazines, and blogs. She enthusiastically promotes a reframed narrative of aging and inspires all generations to take action. Helen strongly believes in multi-generational collaboration and that the best way to promote ageism awareness is through age-diverse conversations. I spoke with Helen at length, and like women over 70, she actively advocates for new perspectives on the value of older adults to society. Ellen, welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you, Gail and Catherine, for the invitation. You're welcome. We're fascinated by the work you're doing. And so let's start our conversation about the current necessity of recognizing the value of older adults today. What, what implications does this have to society? Well, uh, I think that one of the things that we have to keep in mind always is the fact that we are undergoing a huge demographic shift. So the pop we've lived in a very youth-centric world since the mid-1900s. I mean, exquisitely youth-centric. It's just starting to change now because we have more and more people who are of my generation, boomers or older, silent generation, who are beginning to speak out and talk about, you know, the fact that they're not being represented in media and television, uh, in stories overall. But more significantly, I think that we, we lose a lot when we don't listen to the stories that we are told by our elders. There's so much to learn and so many cultures that depend on the um, trans transmission of stories as skill building or as life lessons. It's the best way for us to learn. And yet what we've learned more than anything is to disrespect older people. They don't have to be our grandparents. They don't have to be our aunts and uncles. Um, As a society, we've sort of lost touch with what it means to grow old, the importance of those people and what they have to offer. And especially today, with so many people over the age of 65, in the United States, it'll close. It's almost a fifth of the population. It will be by 2034. In Canada, it will be sooner by 2030. Um, you have more people over the age of 65 than young children. Um, we'd better start uh, reimagining what it means to grow old, and gain a bit more respect for 
the older population that's going to dominate and already does uh, the conversation. Can you tell us tell, tell us about the top sixty over sixty. Mm -hmm. What what is it, and how did that come about? Mm -hmm. Well, as you as you said in the introduction, Gail, um, I named it that because I was tired of hearing about top thirty under thirty, top forty under forty, <laughs> and because my mission is really to um, improve awareness about aging and uh, ageism and to dismantle it as best as possible, I thought that if I could create a, an event or events where people over the age of 60 were featured, it would provide inspirational role models for, for others. And I'm not just talking about young people who need those role models. I believe that a lot of people in my own generation have in they have internalized so many ageist beliefs that they've undermined their own potential and their productivity and their expertise. And I think it's critical that we all begin to understand that there is no real expiry date. We keep adhering to this retirement date of 65, which was established in the 1930s uh, when the average uh, lifespan was 62. And 65 was the reward for living that long. Today, our average lifespan is 82, but nothing has changed. We continue to cling on to the past. So back to top 60 over 60, that was my initial intent. I started it because I was beginning to feel um, the effects of ageism, and I didn't recognize it as ageism. I felt less confident. I, le I felt invisible in conversations. I felt... Uh, you know, disrespected sometimes. And having had leadership experience for over 30 years, it was a bit um, disconcerting, to put it mildly. And I realized when I spoke with others my age that they were feeling the same way. So I delved into researching um, ageism, and I took courses on social entrepreneurship, and I decided I'm going to start something new. I still have the energy, and it drives me. Uh, you know, my passion for working with young people and every other generation. And I thought this was a way that I could use my past expertise in learning and teaching as well as help to motivate others so that they don't fear growing older. So how has this manifested itself? It's six years now that you've been doing this. Yeah, it hasn't even been six years, but officially since I registered it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then there was COVID, of course, for two right, of course. So yes, that's so it manifested itself initially um, by uh, doing workshops on the entrepreneurial mindset for older adults, mm -hmm. and uh, continued to do that. What we do is we, um, and I say we, I had a volunteer who was working with me. We asked restaurants or any public place we could think of if we could perhaps do a, a workshop, and we uh, announced it, advertised it. Um, made it obvious that we were looking for older participants, although everybody was welcome. And what we tried to do is give them the skills, the competencies that you need as you grow older, not necessarily to become an entrepreneur, but these are the kinds of skills that everybody can use at any point in their life. But those of us who are older, I mean, for me, an entrepreneur, I thought all entrepreneurs were in their 30s or 40s because of Mr. Zuckerberg. Um, and so I wasn't in that world. I wasn't in the business world. I was in education. So what we offered were courses such as creativity. And we'd, we'd have 
30 people show up. The restaurant was delighted. You know, they didn't charge us anything. They ate food. They drank. We had a great time. We formed a bit of a community. And, you know, sometimes we do it in a a university setting. Sometimes we do it in a college setting, Um, mostly bars and restaurants, though, to tell you the truth. And um, it worked really well. People came out. I didn't charge anything. Um, And so we started getting a following. And, And then... What happened is we got a grant to develop a program for older adults uh, looking at the ways in which internalized ageism impacts the entrepreneurial mindset of older adults. Mm. And so we formulated a program that was also prior to COVID. And that took about a year development and and doing it. It was a huge success. We built a community (laughs) and then we wanted to continue on. But the organization, one of the organizations, which was the Ontario Center of Workforce Innovation, dissolved. And the other was a university, and they didn't dissolve. They're still around. But we couldn't offer the courses then because of that and COVID in the way in which we had intended. Right. So, so I'm still looking, going back to the name, I wish I hadn't named it that, but I did. And I'm looking now for partners or sponsors so that we can really get this rolling. I think now's the time people are becoming aware of of the expertise and ingenuity of older adults. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. You talk talk about um, gendered ageism. You want to say some more about that? Sure. I mean, I think you probably are well aware, and most of your listeners are, that when when we refer to it, we're combining, you know, sexism with ageism, essentially. So it's a double whammy for women. Um, I mean, there are enough articles that have been written recently by the Harvard Review and so on saying that there is no right age for women. And it's true. Either they're too young or they're too old. You really can't win as a woman. Uh, So gendered ageism is referring to that phenomena that has a huge impact on women um, of all ages, but in particular those who are older. So I hear stories from people all the time where I'm told that, you know, everybody, she was, this person was uh, let go, they were redundant, but the people who survived were all much, much younger, you know, hard to prove that it would be ageism, but there's enough of, uh, um, enough of, enough evidence that that is something that's quite common. The other evidence that you can see regularly is the fact that when you approach, when you're getting older, or God forbid you have gray hair like I do, um, somebody will come up to you, even if you're in your 40s or 50s, and say, when are you retiring? You know, And people don't recognize the type of everyday ageism that uh, we experience, and especially women experience. So there's the whole area called, I think, lookism now. You know, You have to look good, and you have to be young. And you have to, um, you know, be under a certain age. And all the statistics show that men over the age of 55 who want to return to the workforce or who have left, they get jobs pretty quickly. And it can take a woman over 55 easily two years. And then it's not often a full-time job, Mm -hmm. uh, underpaid and so on. And unfortunately, who are the people who are the poorest in North America, it's typically older women who are divorced, separated, widowed, uh, who don't have financial security for a a lot of reasons. 
And many of them want to go back or want to start working at that point and have skills and experiences that they could use, but they're discriminated against. So that's what... Okay. So you um, talked a little bit... When we when you and I had our discussion, we talked a little bit about, um, oh, the negative effects on siloing people on this trend towards retirement villages. <laughs> so I'd like to hear more uh, of your take on that. Well, it's interesting. You know, I think when I was younger and when I heard people were going into retirement villages or homes, you know, the very first one I think was established in in the 60s, you know, Sunshine Village or something in Arizona. You know, people spoke about it as really a novel idea and that people didn't want to be bothered by bicycle bells or you know, hoops, basketball hoops and things like that, um, disturbing their peace and, and quiet. And yeah, maybe that sounded good at that particular point. It was place to go. Um, but it, of course, there wasn't a critical mass of people who were, who were doing that. But what has happened at this particular point in time with so many people who are, who are over the age of 60 or who are over, I mean, the fastest growing segment of society are the 85 and older group. And many of these people uh, need need attention or care. And the fact that they're going into these homes or they're being placed in long-term care or nursing homes and whatnot, there's no life around them if you don't hear children or if you don't interact with people of different ages. If you're always in the same environment with people of the same age, your cognitive abilities are going to decline you're not going to be as stimulated. You won't be as curious. And I think, you know, that all started, um, you know, when we started siloing uh, children in mass education, but now it has carried on in the 19th, you know, since the middle of the last century. And it's become normalized to put people away, essentially. And many other cultures wouldn't think of having their parents or grandparents um put in a home or another place. It's their responsibility to, they'd be shamed if they did do something like that. And I'm not categorically saying you shouldn't put people in an appropriate environment in which they can be taken care of. That's another level. Um, and we're going to need more and more of that. But I believe that young people are not, unless they are lucky enough to have grandchildren, uh, sorry, grandparents, they don't have the kind of connections that we had in the past. And so they're losing out on that, uh, on the storytelling and on the, um, the, the richness of the life that came before them, the, you know, history. Uh, there's so much to gain by ensuring that generations uh, converse. And by that, I don't even mean just only five-year-olds or 10-year-olds, but if you have grandchildren in their teens, I mean, a grandparent is often the person to, to whom they go to confide because they're a little bit more distant, but you know that they love you. Um, but we're not all lucky enough to have grandparents. So I think that some of the things that are being done today where um, they're putting uh, daycares and nursery schools into senior centers and senior living is a great idea. There are tons of uh, other um, examples such as think out in Saskatchewan, for instance, there was a, a, a university um, where there were music students 
and they couldn't find housing, but there was a room in one of the senior residences. So in exchange for housing, these young musicians play and practice, you know, among the older adults who are in these homes. I mean, those are brilliant ideas that need to be, you know, more common. And um, there are others that I know of where um, a senior's residence, oh, no, yeah, it's a grade six class has been there, a room has been built for a classroom in a senior's residence. And so the adults go in and work with the kids and the kids can come out and do things with the, um, the residents. I mean, that's brilliant. And, and it's so enriching. It's just like having a pet too, or bringing dogs in. I mean, we, so I, I really am, I'm hard on a lot of these, these centers that are just for adults only for that reason. You know, I can see that they serve a purpose sometimes. You mentioned that there are other other countries where the culture is still more inclusive of, of ages and families caring for their elder. Well, just for, for give us a, an example or two where oh, that's still possible. Oh, it's very possible in India, for instance. Um, you know, a, a lot of um, South Asians wouldn't dream of of putting their bread. In fact, when I mentioned something about uh, about this or talking about it, they said, we would never stick our, our elders in a home. It would, we would be shamed for that, you know? And I, I believe that's probably true in previously in Chinese cultures, even here, you know, the Chinese families that, that we know, uh, you know, they're often older people who are in their homes and helping to bring up the children. I mean, it makes sense, especially when we have, um, dual income families today and nobody's there for the children. Why wouldn't you have somebody else who's who's who cares about the child be in the home? So all of those things that used to be normalized in our society when we were in a more rural uh, environment, they were that was the norm. It wasn't unusual. But of course we've moved away from that. And the other thing is that our children don't necessarily live anymore in the same city, uh, country, <laughs> province, state. They're far, far away from us. So you, you need surrogate children or surrogate young friends to to keep you current and to make you want to learn and and stay upright, you know? There you are some, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask if there was an, uh, some stories that you've heard from the younger and older people as, when they come together. What do they... What are they what are they gaining from each other? Well, first of all, it depends on how young and old they are, but the experiences that I've had, so I've had a number of um, a series of conversations across generations. In fact, I'm going to be having uh, one on October the 1st, and I hope you'll join, or your listeners if this goes out beforehand, but it's about celebrating longevity. And I deliberately have a panelist who's going to be, who's a teenager, as well as a 70-year-old and a 50-year-old. Uh, and I've had a number of these, and I cannot tell you how positive the feedback is from the young people. They say, first of all, younger people, not this young girl who I'm talking about because she's more aware, but others come up to me when I speak and say, I didn't know that ageism existed. I never heard of it before. They hadn't, they were totally unaware. And they thought that there were, you know, they recognized that these are social justice and human rights issues that haven't been attended to, and they get quite indignant when they realize that. 
but they're not aware of it. And I think that's a, a tragedy. And I think that's a flaw in, you know, in our systems as well in public education. Uh, evidence is, shows that children as young as three already have negative preconceptions of what it means to be old, you know, and if you read them fairy tales, it's no wonder because who are the witches? <laughs> and um, unfortunately, the wizards don't take take uh, take the bad reputation. It's always the witches that do. So you know they see and they see signs all over the world with older people who are you know leaning on a a cane crossing a street near a senior's residence. Um, so. Uh, I get really positive feedback from young people. And I've had people from uh, South Africa, from Poland, who get on, because it's virtual, so they get on. And they said, oh, you know, they never thought about certain issues, and now they'll start thinking about it, or they'll talk to an, another older person to find out their take on it, that kind of thing. So it's never been anything but positive. There seems to be a a trend that for... for um independent living that mm -hmm. are all older adults along with, you know, continuing care, right? So you move into independent living and then you move into assisted living and then memory care if you need it or, or what. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering how you're viewing those kinds of um, accommodations. Seems to me that older adults are moving there by choice, they're, they can't wait to go. They're anxious to get there. They want to be with other uh, older people. There's all kinds of opportunities for them. And uh, so, so, but still, it's, it's a silent environment, right? Mm -hmm. And so, how do we think about that? Well, I, I don't, you know, if somebody wants to do that, I think it's fantastic um, if they have that opportunity. But my understanding of friends in New York is that it costs something like $17,000 a, a month to stay in a, in a place like that. How realistic is that for the general population? So I think that, you know, if you can afford it, if that's what you want to do, um, I don't have a problem with it. But I mean, you can inject some some youth perspective in there as well. It shouldn't, it shouldn't eliminate that opportunity. And yet, you know, I've heard of people saying, you know, this floor has no grandchildren or whatever, or you meet them in the public places. So I, again, I think it's, you know, we've made it the norm if, and it's, it's something perhaps to aspire to. And the reality is, as I said, if you're, you have people who are close to you who are far away and cannot take care of you and want to, and they want to give you a safe place to be, that's what they're going to do. So I don't think that'll ever disappear, mm -hmm. but there's no reason why you couldn't perhaps also eject um, you know, the benefits of, of being around other generations. You could create opportunities, you know? Right. right. So yeah. I don't know if that answered your question, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I just know that that the trend is, is growing for these kinds of establishments for older people, and many are, are who can't afford it, are taking oh. advantage of them. So up here, that's not the case as much. Um, what we're looking at, at increasingly is aging in place, and putting in um, legislation and whatnot to encourage people to add granny suites or to build out the garage so somebody can stay in that and into a um, and then it has to be 
well built because up here it gets cold in winter. So it can't be a garage like it could be in Arizona, perhaps. But the reality is that there are really a lot of incentives now because the majority of people are voicing that they want to stay in the communities in which they've raised their families or where they've lived or for whatever reason they know where the grocery stores are. So there are a lot of businesses that are also into, um, you know, rebuilding uh, places so that they have better stairs to get up or there's, you know, seats that go up the stairs, things like that. So I don't, I don't know if there, because there's so many more people today in that age bracket, Gail, I think that by necessity, there are a lot of, you know, new retirements, uh, residences or whatever. Yeah. Or seniors residents, whatever you call them. Right. <laughs> different, different, by different names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So, so when you and I talked, you, you, you talked about lifelong learning and, but you also use the term long life learning. Mm-hmm. And I love that term. And, you know, so what did you mean by it? Well, I mean, they're interchangeable, I think, in a way. I mean, I'm lucky to be the age that I am. And I believe that so that I have a long life already and I continue to learn. And lifelong learning is just encouraging everyone to not think in that old paradigm that we learn, earn, and retire, mm-hmm. but that we need to keep keep on learning, especially with, uh, you know, the average lifespan now being s- extended by 20 or 30 years over what our grandparents had. But unfortunately, we keep going back to, to norms that we know, you know, and I still hear people saying that they want to play golf and sit on a beach after 65. And, and I think to myself, really? And in two years after that, how, I mean, how many games can you play? of golf if you do nothing else, you know, but that seems to still be the mindset among a lot of people that has to change. Not only are they financially going to need to to, to perhaps earn more money because they're living longer, but also because they need to be productive uh, or they need to find a purpose uh, for living uh, in the, in the end. Otherwise they have no reason to get up in the morning and they probably don't realize or recognize that now. Um, but They'll start reflecting on, you know, what's this all about? Here I am, and uh, what am I doing? So, and that's also one of the the major uh, contribu- co- contributors to longevity is having purpose, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and learning. <laughs> I think you know that I was a principal and a head of a girls' school, and that I was. So I sometimes say I spent fifty five years in schools, and that's true. So I'm a real advocate of, of learning, and I just I just love it, especially when it's outside the realm of my past. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the idea that older people can be taught new things so that they can be of value to society uh-huh. and to workforces is really an important concept. That's one of the biggest, I think, uh, damaging myths is that old people can't learn. You know, that, that, and I, I know I was affected by it. You know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I believed that for a while until I started doing the research and I realized, no, it's not. We have hard drives in our heads that are fuller than young people. And therefore, sometimes it takes longer to retrieve the information, but we're just as capable of learning. It's just processing might be a little slower. Right. So you're um, quite young, 
How are you thinking about your own aging as you move forward? Well, it's interesting you should ask that because I just I was traveling extensively for many years in my sixties and um and in to remote places like Bhutan or in the Andes. I did a lot of trekking. Um and I stopped recently. I stopped in the last few years, partly because I have grandchildren now and I want to be around them when they're little. Um, the other reason was because I had knee surgery. <laughs> um, and the third reason is because I started top 60 over 60, which takes up an inordinate amount of my time because I love it. It's a passion project. Mm -hmm. But I decided this past week that I'm going to move again, move outside my comfort zone and go to places that I haven't been before. And, and by that, I mean, um, yeah, really stretch myself because I like luxury and whatnot, but I think it's really good to sleep on the ground sometimes with peasants in different countries to get a, a perspective on what normal is for the, for the majority of the population, you know, mm -hmm. and wherever I travel, I always contribute, um, by doing volunteer work, uh, because to offset my carbon footprint, because I'm very conscious of that too. So, <laughs> but we're next for you. Um, I don't have anything, uh, planned, but, uh, I may go to a retreat in Tuscany next year. Um, and, but that's not really glamour. That, that's not, uh, that'll be comfortable. <laughs> um, but I just spoke to somebody about, um, walking in the fjords in Nor up Norway or something. But I mean, those are still patrons. No. I'm lucky I can do, I, I, I can do as much as I want, if I can afford it. And I think I may have mentioned to Gail that I worked with Jane Goodall for over 10 years. And uh, I've been to um, the continent of Africa and the several countries there. Um, and Africa always fascinates me. I can go back anytime. I'll be enraptured. Yeah. Just, uh, just some, what kind of work did you do with Jane Goodall? Oh, I was the part part of the time I was the chair of her her board. So she, Jane Goodall has institutes they're called in various countries in Canada, in Germany, in China now, in Australia, and we have uh, an institute here in Canada. So uh, we promote the activities that she does. We host events when she comes here. I mostly try to make money for conservation. Mm -hmm. I put into place uh, a number of different programs, such as Roots and Shoots in Africa has everything to do with African children um, getting involved in uh, conservation. But we have a need for that here, too, with uh, indigenous cultures that we have in the north. And so we've done a lot of work in Roots and Shoots here in Canada, and we develop programs. And that's the kind of thing I would do, as well as all the governance things when being on the board, you know. Yeah, it, yeah, very. Yeah, it was it was lovely, and to think she's eighty nine and going strong. You know, she's a fantastic role model, right? Yes, uh, yes. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Helen. This was worthwhile and and interesting, and you are doing great work. And I hope the top sixty over sixty really does what you want it to do. Thank you. I, it already is. But I hope I can get something else going too. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And listeners, thank you for your loyalty. Because of you, our numbers are growing. 
all across the country and overseas, and this is a good thing. Still, we need more subscribers and reviews on Apple Play and YouTube, and support women over 70 and let your voice be heard. Help us change the conversation about women aging.